Wednesday's podcast. I am Maggie Coomer. And I'm Jasmine Brand. Welcome to episode eight. So today we are covering the Donner Party. The story of the Donner Party has become an American frontier legend. And as a result, there are too many books, movies, documentaries, and articles to count. A few of the sources I utilized for this episode were The Diary of Patrick Breen, uh, PBS.com published excerpts uh, from that source, so I, I, I relied on that. I got a lot of great information about Tamsin Donner, who I will talk about in the episode, uh, from an article by Mark McLaughlin, and I relied heavily on Dan Brown, Daniel Brown's The Indifferent Stars Above, The Harrowing Saga of a Donner Party Bride. Jasmine, what were some of your favorite sources? Some of my favorite sources in researching for this episode were Best Land Under Heaven, The Donner Party in the Age of Manifest Destiny by Michael Wallace, a JSTOR excerpt by Christian Johnson entitled Unfortunate Emigrants that gave a little background on different members of the Donner Party. I enjoyed watching the PBS documentary Rick Burns just titled The Donner Party and enjoyed in as much as you can enjoy a documentary about people that resort to cannibalism, but I digress. I also got a lot of good information out of newspaper articles, both from the 1840s and more contemporary takes on the whole matter. In the spring of 1846, thousands of immigrant men, women, and children departed Independence, Missouri towards the Pacific coast looking for new land out west. Traveling in long wagon trains along the Oregon, California, and Santa Fe trails, settlers could expect to make the 2,000-plus mile journey to Oregon and California in about four to six months, provided, of course, that they didn't succumb to snake bites or dysentery. Bursting with beliefs of manifest destiny, a term coined by journalist John L. O. Sullivan in 1845, many of the Christian Anglo settlers were awash with the belief that it was their God-given right to take these rich western lands from the wild indigenous peoples who were wasting its true potential. Among them would be the ill-fated Donner Reed Party, who decided to take the road less traveled. They would become one of the most infamous pioneer groups by the time what was left of them finally made it to their destination in California a year after setting out. News of their journey and rumors of cannibalism would slow migration in the following years and rightfully ruin the explorer who prompted the migrant group to take the Hastings Cutoff named after him. As for those who survived the ordeal, their lives would never again be the same. The United States doubles in size between 1840 and 1850. And there is a big push to get white settlers out west to start occupying this land, to, to get it into American hands and those resources, those vital resources, into American hands as soon as humanly possible. Uh, and the, the Donners and the Reeds, they're going to be eating this up. Well, and especially for someone like Reed, who has come from Ireland, he's immigrated already. Um, and land is a big thing, you know, coming from a place with a, um, essentially a monarchy or the threat of a monarchy in the case of <laughs> British and Irish history, which we won't go into right now. But land is everything. To have land, you were royal. So the promise of land out west means a whole lot more to immigrants coming from places that 
has that association, I guess. Well, and, you know, most of the land east is spoken for. So for people who are poor or and you know what that doesn't even apply here because the donners and the reeds they were they were fairly well off i mean reed had his own financial woes but these were not destitute people you had to have money for the trip you had to have money for the supplies so it's pitched to them as this land out west is theirs for the taking the donner reed group launched their journey on april 14th in 1846 from springfield illinois heading towards Independence, Missouri, eventually wanting to reach California. And this timing is about a month late because they're relying on the guide from a man named Lansford Hastings, who claimed that you could take a cutoff and it would shorten the journey by hundreds of miles and therefore shorten the journey by about a month. So they pack up, they've taken four months of food with them, which is a really small amount considering that some journeys are going to take six months and they're reliant on this immigrant's guide who's painting this beautiful picture of California is the perfect climate. You can grow all year round. There's everything there that you could possibly want and as much land as you can take. Yeah. Speaking of Hastings, so lands for W. Hastings uh, is described in different sources in different ways. But uh, I've gathered he was a lawyer from Mount Vernon, Ohio. Uh, he had gone out to California in 1842 and written a, a guide, and the quote unquote, the immigrant's guide to Oregon and California about his travels. And I've flipped through this guide. It's mostly a nature guide. He's mostly just talking about the landscape. Uh, but he does detail this this new and quicker path. So in Hastings' travel guide, he says that his new cutoff will save travelers about 300 miles on their journey. The kicker here, though, is that he hasn't taken it himself. He's just looked at it on a map, and that's about it. In Independence, they joined a large wagon train and along the way picked up uh, the families of Graves, Eddie, Murphy, Foster, Pike, Wolfinger, Keysburg and the family of the Breens, along with the McClutchens. And this also includes a, a band of numerous single travelers, guides, and teamsters. At first, their journey proceeded like many others had before them. According to letters by Tamson Donner, George Donner's wife, the first part of the journey was quite pleasant. Lots of buffalo, beautiful landscape, new plants for her to study as she was a, an avid botanist. They made it to Fort Laramie, Laramie by the 4th of July. At that stop, James Reed spoke with a frontiersman named James Kleiman. And James Reed, who was a, uh, an av- a fan of, of uh, Lansford Hastings, you know, produces the Hastings guidebook and divulges that they're planning to take Hastings' new cutoff. Despite mountain man Kleiman saying, if you go this route, you shall perish. They say, you know what? He doesn't know what he's talking about. They decide to anyway. Yeah. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Let's take that route anyway. And the wives all say, well, it's their sense of adventure. Kind of a boys will be boys thing, which I'm sure they regretted heavily, heavily later. Um, so they decide to take this Hastings cutoff and they'll split south from the Oregon Trail uh, somewhere in Wyoming. And... Well, there they go. Now, the Hastings cutoff has not even been taken by Hastings himself yet, and he promises to meet them to kind of guide them through this new route, essentially to see if it works. On July 18th, at the Little Sandy River, the Reed Donner party splits off. 
but with about 30 to 40 more immigrants tagging along than before. 20 wagons turn left towards Hastings Cutoff. Then they head to Fort Bridger. That's the supposed rendezvous point where Hastings himself was waiting to, to usher, to ferry new immigrants across his new route. But when they get there, on July 24th, Hastings has already departed with another group the week before, and he leaves a note. Um, and so they stay at Fort Bridger for about a week, and they set off July 31st through the Hastings cutoff with handwritten instructions left by Hastings. Well, and by the time they get to the route, there's another, like, handwritten note on a post or a tree. It's different in different reports that essentially tell them not to try and take their wagons through that way. Yeah, and, wait, wait there. So, <laughs> Yeah, wait, wait for him. So they, yeah, just wait. I'll come back. <laughs> and so a couple of the party members, like, go forward and find him. And then he refuses to come back with them and says, ah, just, you know, go that way. He kind of points in a direction. They make it back barely on horseback and are just like, well, we can't go back now. So let's forage forward. Well, I read that uh, Virginia, Virginia Reed said her mother, Margaret, that the note was actually in pieces and her mother Margaret had to like get on the ground and like piece it back together and everybody waited with bated breath just waiting for her to what you know what it was going to say and Hastings says wait here I'll be back and then after a couple days James Reed says you know what screw this he gets a horse he goes to try to hunt down overtake Hastings it takes him five days to locate Hastings and Hastings is like I'm not I'm not going back there so they stand at the top of a high peak and Hastings points out where he thinks is going to be the best route for the wagons points and then says good luck to you have a nice day and I think that's really the beginning of the end at that point Oh, yeah, it's it's all over, um, all over from there, because they're supposed to be going somewhere between 13 and 15 miles per day. And some of their accounts say they only make it a mile or a mile and a half and a half per day because they're yeah, like two miles. Yeah, two miles per day, something like that. Yeah, yeah, because they're clearing literal trees from their route. They're making their own road. They're felling trees to be able to get their wagons through this cutoff. Yeah, and I mean, if you imagine the Reed's wagon was twice the size of like a normal a Oregon Trail, yeah. yeah, Oregon Trail wagon with all of this fancy stuff in it, so it doesn't it doesn't uh, fare too well. So they lose wagons, they lose people, they lose oxen and livestock, and it's it's really a mess. And James Reed will take the blame for all of that. The group pretty much hates him by the time they've reached the other side, but they do reach the other side. Yeah, they're cursing him. I think that the most interesting part of the Hastings cutoff is the uh, the salt desert. That was the most interesting part of that for me because that seems to be the most grueling point. So the the salt when they then when they reach the salt plains, they find yet another note from Hastings that says two days, two nights, hard driving, find water. So they're estimating that it's about 40 miles across this salt desert, which is a barren wasteland. There is absolutely nothing in it. And the top of it is a crust. So as they take these heavy wagons across, there's moisture underneath this crust. And the, and the sun essentially turns it into like this muck. And the, it, it swallows wagons. It's swallowing whole animals. Like It's like acting like a quicksand. So a lot of people have to abandon their wagons and go out on foot with no water. They run out of food. And guess what? The desert turns out to be 80 miles across. So it takes them about five days. And by that point, 
I mean, people are people are pissed. People are so angry, which rightly so, you know. Well, and they haven't even reached the mountains yet. They still have that to navigate. (laughs) Yeah, they haven't even reached the Sierra Nevadas. That's the bad one. And then like they've already had so much trouble. So by the time it, the Hastings cutoff was supposed to uh, shave 300 miles off their journey, it ends up adding a month to their journey. Had they just taken the uh, the normal route, the California Trail, it would have been uh, saved about a month's worth of time. Well, and they were already behind because they were waiting on Hastings and they had left considerably late in the season um they were like towards the end of when was acceptable so they're getting into some dangerous territory continuing their travels at this point during the hastings cutoff the the group lost 100 head of cattle which is absolutely disastrous for them yeah absolutely so so they they rejoin yeah they rejoin the california trail go along the humboldt river where they'll lose james reed because he gets exiled due to a fight the fight is super interesting but anyway they lose one of their leaders they're going to continue on they have to make it through the Sierra Nevadas. And that's really all that's standing between them and their destination at this point. So they stop, rest for, what did you say, five days? Five days. Yep. Five days. Um, and then they decide to make it through because they are promised that snow will not fall for another month. And this is... This is October. Well, yeah. wrong. <laughs> this is this is wrong. It's October. They say, oh, snow's not going to fall until mid to late November. You can make it through. It's fine. So they will start start their path through i think i read it was a thousand foot slope basically vertical that they have to get the remaining wagons up and they're exhausted livestock and of course all the people are exhausted by this point they're all walking because they've lost so many wagons and they will find themselves about three miles from the summit when snow begins to fall they're right by the is it Truckee lake yeah Truckee lake Lake. Mm -hmm. today donner lake um And so they're about three miles from the summit, and some of the families will decide to just camp there and see if the snow passes. Some will try and forage forward, but they find they can't. The snow is falling too fast and too heavy. They lose track of the trail and have to turn back to Truckee Lake and make camp before it gets too bad. Now, this snow is going to fall for eight days straight. So I'm and I'm going to read really quick. I'm going to read a, a diary entry from Patrick Breen's diary. So, quote, this is a, a, a diary entry from November 20th, 1846. So, quote, uh, came to this place on the 31st of last month. That's October 31st. That it snowed. We went on to the past. The snow so deep we were unable to find the road. When within three miles of the summit... Then we had to turn back to this shanty on the lake. Stanton came one day after we arrived here again uh, and took our teams and wagons and made another unsuccessful attempt to cross in company with Stanton. They were unsuccessful. We returned to the shanty. It continued to snow all the time we were here and now have killed most part of our cattle, having to stay here until next spring and live on poor poor beef without bread or salt. So that is November 20th. They've resolved that they're going to have to spend the winter there. Basically, their oxen, you know, in the, in the amount of snow that's that's falling, their oxen are dying at a crazy rate. They did not have enough food or livestock to get them through a winter. 
Um, because the winter is so bad and the snows came early, most of the woodland creatures have moved south, gone to a better climate at that point, or moved to lower ground. So there's nothing for them to eat. And there's some pretty disgusting stories about what they have to eat before they finally reduced or they're finally reduced to cannibalism. Well, and part of that problem is as well, because they were from most of them were from middle to upper class families. They didn't have practical skills, so they couldn't set animal traps. They didn't know how to fish. Um, And so all of the resources that they could have used before resorting to while eating their shoelaces and other people, they just couldn't couldn't do because they didn't know how. Yeah, like the Donners and the Reeds. I mean, these are wealthy farmers. So, I mean, they, they do have survival skills, but they don't know how to live in a winter in the winter in the Sierra Madras or in the Sierra Nevadas. Like they just can't. Like Those are not translatable skills. Yeah, yeah. But it was things like they didn't know how to set animal traps and, and surprising things like that, that they just couldn't couldn't wrap their heads around. I think early on someone manages to shoot a bear, but that's about about it. All right. Well, should we talk about the Forlorn Hope? Yeah, let's go. By the 1st of December, they've largely run out of food. They're resorting to things like boiling strips of oxen hide until it becomes a, a nutritious glue and shoveling that down and rationing that. Uh, very little dried beef, very little oxen. Uh, people are People are hungry. People are scared. On December 15th, donning 15 pairs of snowshoes made by the Graves family out of oxen bows and rawhide straps. Uh, uh, Roughly 15 people set out, and they call themselves the Forlorn Hope. They're going to attempt to make it to Johnson's Ranch, which is estimated to be about 60 miles away. So they think they can do 10 10 miles a day, which is ambitious at best, Uh, let alone that they've been eating barely any food for a month. So they're already pretty emaciated at this point. Uh, Unfortunately, um, thick snows and misdirection, they uh, only managed to go about 14 miles from the camp by day four. So they're going to run out of food pretty quickly. Charles Stanton, the guide, dies around day four or day five. He's last seen by the group, allegedly sitting in a snowdrift, smoking his pipe, unable to go any further. Uh, their bodies are struggling with hypothermia and hyper hypothermia and hyperthermia. So as you get into cold climates, um, you know, the cold can can cause your body to shut down, but also the ch- differing changes in your body temperature. So as they're climbing up these steep slopes in the sun, even though they're in snow, their body temperatures can spike as well, which cause hyperthermia. So they've got a whole host of problems. Uh, Their snowshoes begin to disintegrate. Almost all of them had snow blindness. Uh, This can cause headache, nausea, and permanent blindness in extreme cases. By Christmas Eve, so nine days after they start, they make a fire on a stream that unfortunately, like, it melts and drops it into the icy water. So they're left without a fire. Uh, The winds get really bad that afternoon. And it's on that afternoon that Patrick Dolan and Lemuel Murphy start having fits of incoherent rage and ranting. This is probably due to hypothermia. That night, Patrick Dolan suggests that they draw straws just in case to see, you know, who 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 would be food for the group. All right. So this is their first introduction into the the land of cannibalism. But per the indifferent stars above, Patrick Dolan drew the short straw, but no one wanted to murder him. 
William Eddy suggested that they wait until somebody else died and then just eat them then. By Christmas Day, Franklin Graves, Antonio, and Patrick Dolan have all died, probably from hypothermia. But the group uh, assumes that these men died from starvation, which is probably going to quicken their response and, and, and de- you know, getting them to, to resort to cannibalism. Uh, Lemuel Murphy died after that, and the group is going to clean and cook the meat from the dead bodies after Lemuel dies. I think it's so interesting, too, because there's been so many studies on how long a person can go without food or on very minimal food, and most of those studies are months. And I know they're putting a lot of exertion out with climbing and building and all of this, but I think it's really them seeing people die from what they assume is starvation that pushes that idea of cannibalism because by some accounts they probably could have made, I mean, they've only been a few days without food, any food rations by this point. So it's just so interesting to me that that's their next step before anything else. From what I read about the forlorn hope, they were in complete agony. I mean, they were already starving when they set out Um, when they're done, you know, they finish their food by day six And then by day 10, that's when they're cooking and eating people. All in all, of the 15 people or around 15 people that set out, there are seven survivors total. All five women survive, uh, but only two of the men survive, William Eddy and William Foster. Uh, The group stumbles into a Midu, Midu Native American village, and they will feed them acorn gruel and then guide them to Johnson's Ranch. Only William Eddy, who makes it to Johnson's Ranch, and that's on the 17th of January. The rest of the group had collapsed due to weakness about a mile back. Uh, and so the uh, Johnson, uh, some settlers of the Johnson's cabin are going to, you know, get together a band and go and find the rest of the group. Johnson is actually going to send work, word to Fort Sutter asking for aid to go get the rest of the Donna Reed party. So this is essentially what starts the four... Uh, four-party rescue effort to go back and get the Donners and the Reeds, all the families who are left at Truckee Lake and beyond. Like you said, there's four attempts for rescue. And actually, this even discredits James Reed had made it all the way there after being exiled. And he will start rescue attempts from like late October, but he can't get through the snow and he, he just can't get to them. So Rescue attempts pick up again in early February when they are able to kind of track through some of it. It's not easy. Some of the groups have to turn around. They still lose people. Um, But they manage to get most of the surviving members back out to civilization, as it were. So reports differ on the total amount of people in the Donner Party, but uh, around 87 people were in the final party count, and only about half survived. About 46 survived. 41 people died, at least. That includes five women, 14 children, and 22 men died from either starvation, exposure, or in another nefarious way. Yeah, and there was a couple of different articles published by people who would take um, take their same route in the years to come after them. And little snippets that I pulled from some of those newspaper articles that get printed were, were as follows. So there's one that says that remnants of cabins as well as remnants of wearing apparel, male and female, are all still visible. A gold chain and cross was found by an immigrant at one of the cabins. 
all remember the fate of the Donner Party. So it's this very ominous, almost spooky, spooky finding of this this traveler from the ne- the following year in, in 1847. And another passage, which is a little bit longer, I found really interesting. It was a letter to the New York Gazette from a man who traveled to California in 1848. And it's a really long letter. At the end of it, he just says, a few more last words and I shall have finished. In the midst of the mountains were passed through a horrid, dismal, gloomy, and terrific glen, which was the scene of the sufferings of the Donner Party in 1816, but I think he means 1846. One of the cabins still remains, containing remains of their cannibal sacrifices. About 200 persons were caught in the mountain, Sierra Nevada by the snow and although within 100 miles of their destination their sufferings were so great that they abandoned themselves to despair and fed upon one another the stronger upon the weaker the women and children being victims with the others the very sight of the bones and skulls some with their hair still adhering made me shudder and be thankful even with my own wearied condition so that's a pretty grisly account of what he still finds several years later archaeologists go like years and years later today there's a museum there and it's like a little holiday town with a place called burger me no thank you (laughs) don't burger Um, me do not burger me (laughs) don't burger me um and archaeologists go in and they can't actually find any proof of cannibalism which i found so interesting because it's so well documented um and so they can't actually find that and it it is important because they found evidence at other sites like jamestown in 1609 reportedly had a super bad winter and they found the skull of a 14 year old girl with like carvings on the inside where they had scooped out her brain sorry for the very vivid imagery but they they have been able to find that other places and not here so just just food for thought maybe a bad turn of phrase but (laughs) (laughs) food for thought so a couple of stories that jasmine and i found particularly interesting i thought the the life of tamsin donner george donner's husband was particularly interesting this woman was born in 1801 in newbury massachusetts and she became a teacher moved to elizabeth city north carolina and she didn't marry until quite late in life oh well not by our standards. She marries at 28. Um, but this is at a time where there was, it was not uncommon to get married when you were a teenager. Um, by 28, you were old. She married Tully Dozier. They were married for about three years before tragedy struck. In September of 1830, their baby boy died, followed by a premature birth and the death of a daughter in November. And then finally, Tully died in December of 1830, allegedly all during a, an influenza epidemic. Tamsin loses her entire first family. So she goes back to teaching school in North Carolina until she gets a letter from her brother who sends for her. He wants her to join him in Springfield, Illinois. His wife had died. He needed help caring for his children. So Tamsin is going to leave North Carolina behind. It's in Springfield that she meets and marries George Donner. He was a widower about two times over with a bunch of kids And Tamsin and George go on to have three more, Uh, three daughters, Francis, Georgia, and Eliza, who will all join them on this westward expedition. In Illinois, they lived a super comfortable life. George was wealthy. He had two profitable farms totaling about 240 acres. They inhabited a large farmhouse with, quote, two brick chimneys. And despite this sexful... (laughs) 
<laughs> Despite their successful life, however, expansionist fever bit 62-year-old George Donner. And before long, George had talked his brother Jacob into coming along, and they were making plans to go west in early 1846. Tamsin and George head west with Jacob Donner, his family, and the Reeds. They bring their three daughters, as I mentioned, along with two daughters from George's previous marriages, Leanna and Aletha. Tamsin was an avid botanist in addition to being a a school teacher. According to her letters, she enjoyed the first parts of the journey when she was able to explore the new landscape. Uh, Tamsin intended to open up a school, a girls' school, once they reached California. But unfortunately, they're a part of the Donner Party. So they get caught up uh, at at Chucky Lake, now known as Donner Lake. Uh, And in early December, George cuts his hand while felling a tree to make them shelter. And it becomes gangrenous. So infection starts spreading up his arm. By the time the first relief party shows up in February, George is too sick to move. He allegedly tells Tamsin to go. She refuses uh, each and every uh, relief party. She says she will not let her husband die alone. And unfortunately, uh, neither George nor Tamsin will make it alive. But all of their children do survive. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Lewis Kiesberg then, as he's actually accused of murdering Tamsin, which is a whole, whole thing. And no one really likes him out of this party. He joins along with his pregnant wife and his daughter. And other travelers are going to note down in their journal before they even make it to Chucky Lake that he is an awful man, that he keeps to himself, that he's eccentric, that he beats his wife and is really mean to his daughter. And again, people just generally don't like him anyway not going to be helped by the events that then follow. So Kiesberg, really the big part of his story is towards the end of their entrapment in the Sierra Nevadas. And he's going to be along with Tamsin in the last of the party to be rescued from Truckee Lake. And unfortunately, this is where his story takes a turn. And no one's really sure what happens because he is the only person that will be rescued from that fourth relief effort. Now, when the third relief effort leaves, by all accounts, Tamsin was alive and well and as healthy as she could have been living off of human flesh and shoelaces for the last few months. But when they return, they find Kiesberg in this cabin with human meat on 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 the, like a makeshift stove in the kettle, surrounded by bones. And again, this is probably a little hyped up by some of the relief party. It's it's a pretty grueling, grisly sight. He was picking his teeth with a bone, with a finger bone. <laughs> pretty much. That's that's what they basically say that they come across. Um, and he's like very emaciated, and they don't really believe his story once they ask him where Tamsin is, because well, they can see part of her in his cabin along with him and he says that she was coming to stay in his cabin with him because they were really the only ones left and she slipped and fell in a creek made it to his cabin and died in his arms later that night and before she died she begged him to take the family's gold and silks and firearms (laughs) and all of their wealth back to their children which is why he had lied his 
Yeah, right? Which is why he had lined his pants <laughs> with these things rather than just have oh, them God. out ready to go, right? Um, so <laughs> understandably, the relief group don't really believe him, but they're there. He's the only one there. They're like, well, whatever. We'll bring you back. We'll figure justice out when we get to California. Um, I mean, they're arguably in California, but where where civilization is in their eyes. And that's what they do. They They track him back. Now, even his journey back is a little bit skewed. There's one story that says his wife and daughter are taken back in a different relief effort. His daughter dies along the way and he doesn't know about it until he reaches his wife back in Sutter's Fort. The other story is that they make camp one night while traveling back and he sees a little piece of cloth in the snow and he pulls and pulls and pulls at it until he discovers his daughter lying there frozen and dead in the snow. And this has a, you know, irreversible damage on his psyche. And I don't really know what the true story is. There's all different accounts, even after after years he's telling different stories to different people so i don't really know what happens there but anyway he is brought back reunited with his wife they go on to have other children but this story is going to follow him everyone thinks of him as this human hungry murdering cannibal and one of the bloodthirsty yeah that's the word i was looking for bloodthirsty cannibal and one of the articles that is published in 1848 in the sacramento bee calls him keysburg the confessor and it reads that damaging reports about lewis keysburg whose confession furnishes the sequel to the story of the donner party in the Truckee republican says a story runs to the effect that Keysburg, while intoxicated at one time in a saloon near Truckee, boasted of having partaken of the flesh of Mrs. Donner and of its fine taste and that a bystander indignantly knocked him down. It is also said that the same Lewis Keysburg was driven out of Green Valley in Pacer County for boasting of having eaten the flesh of other members of the Donner party. There are other newspaper articles that report that he boasted about eating the liver of Mrs. Donner and how it was the sweetest meat he'd ever eaten and better than any kind of California beef. So you can see how he quickly becomes this symbol of the Donner Party, an evil symbol of cannibalism. And there are some newspapers that actually will recount recant this statement. The Sacramento Bee does about a month later. They say that actually Keysburg hasn't been near Truckee Lake since he was rescued and it was just someone pretending to be him. Now, whether it was or not, I don't know because so many people say that it was Keysburg essentially going around boasting about his cannibalistic habits. And there's a historian that I read. So the best land under heaven by Michael Wallace talks about how Keysburg might have actually been saying these things, but even if he did, it's not an admission of guilt because he likely was suffering with intense PTSD that could have led to a psychotic break. And without any, any psychology at that point in time, no one's really going to know. He's not going to have like sat down with a therapist and talked through this awful experience. Yeah. <laughs> cognitive therapy, therapy wasn't a thing yet. <laughs> so, you know, no one really knows if it is him, if it isn't, him is he saying these things is he not is it true or not i mean he he fully admits to eating 
Tamsin Donner, and he'll even meet her youngest daughter. I think she was four at the time of the events that the Donner Party go through, and he meets her when she's an adult and admits to it. He he doesn't do it crudely, but he says that he did it, and he's really sorry, and he like fa- apparently falls to his knees in this great big sweeping scene and she apparently believes him and forgives him and whatever so it's a very different tone that you get and in fact he's interviewed for another book when he's 65 called the history of the donner party a tragedy of the sierra by cf mcgash mcglashan mcf mcglashan Sorry for the pronunciation of that name. Um, <laughs> but he's interviewed and his what he apparently says to this author is that the flesh of starved beings contains little nutrition. It's like feeding straw to horses. I cannot describe the unutterable repugnance with which I tasted the first mouthful of flesh. There is an instinct in our nature that revolts at the thought of touching, much less eating a corpse. It makes my blood curdle to think of it. And that's a really different tone than what he supposedly had at all these saloons in his younger years. I read that cannibalism can cause something called, I think it's Pyron or Pyron disease. It's essentially mad cow in humans. So it creates holes in the brain that would change essentially your brain chemistry. So it would be really interesting to me to know how different the people that participated, if they caught Pyron disease, how different they were after their experience versus before, like personality wise. I mean, obviously we have that with Kiesberg. He's manic at best. Um, But yeah, that's, that's a really interesting kind of side effect. They said that you, it even causes death. So I also wonder how many people from the Donner Party died as a result of human mad cow. That is super interesting. Thank you all so much for listening to episode eight. We hope to bring you more content in the coming weeks, coming months. If you haven't already, uh, we would love for you to head to Apple Podcast and leave us a five-star review or a five-star rating. Again, you don't have to write anything. You can just drop five stars for us. But if you do choose to write a stunning review for us, we will read it on our next episode. So little incentive there if you want to have your name called out and have your beautiful words of praise for us read out to the whole world, you just you go ahead and leave us a five-star review. Without further ado, let's read some of our newest reviews. So uh, we have a five-star review from Nick EE89. Uh, this review says, really impressed with the show. The hosts have great chemistry and you can tell they have done their research. I love the variety of topics too subscribed thank you very much nick ee89 we have a review from ridiculous patronus one says excellent the history is so detailed and descriptive content is excellent so intense and detailed the hosts have great chemistry such a suspenseful such a suspenseful podcast looking forward to more we also have a review from red oak mama fascinating and not forgotten These ladies are dedicated historians bringing to light some important but forgotten narratives. Keep it up. Looking forward to the next installment. So are we. All right. Uh, The next one, The History of Being by Reentering. These ladies bring stories to light with the ease of two friends sharing a piece of fruit. (laughs) And I find myself counting the days until each new post. Love that. 
And then from JWill2130, first episode, I enjoyed the debut episode of The Good Old Days tremendously. It's a food mix of storytelling and analysis that, analysis that helps create the more context, create more context to different points in history. So thank you folks so much for all the love. Uh, if you want to show us some more love and give us some more five-star reviews, we will be happy to read your review out uh, next episode. So that makes me gives me the warm and fuzzies. <laughs> and don't forget to follow us on all our social media. So Instagram and Facebook, we're the good old days pod. On Twitter, we are the good OD pod. And I'm playing with a TikTok. I'll keep you guys updated on how that works. <laughs> I think that's everything. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Thank you so much. Have a great week. Bye, guys. Bye.